what I try and impress on people is you're going to have to say no, and you're going to have to decide which is more important to you, your life or freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Saliri Report. We have a special report for you today. This is for the public, and it's on the Gates Syndicate. And we are joined by James Corbett from Tokyo, who has just finished an absolutely spectacular series on Bill Gates. If you haven't seen it, I'm calling it Gates Times 4. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's a must-see. We're going to talk a little bit more about the or dive into the business models that Gates and his syndicate use. But James, I wanted to thank you because I know that took a huge amount of work and you, uh, you described yourself as working around the clock for a month. And I think it was, it, it was a spectacular result. So congratulations. Well, thank you very much for that. Yes, it was a lot of work, but I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm doing it because I think it's important and I hope people out there will agree. And uh, the results of that month of labor are now up completely 100% free to the public, corporatereport.com slash gates, where you can find the video and audio and a hyperlink transcript of the entire four-part documentary. Right. And I would encourage everyone, you, you have a donation model, I encourage everyone to donate. I was reminded, I don't know if you've ever seen the scene in Patton where Bradley says, give George a headline and he's good for another 60 miles. So I was thinking, put some more gas in your tank and God knows what would come out. I think one of the most important points you made in the, in your series was that Gates is only one person and he's part of a syndicate and I would call it a syndicate. You called it an ideology. And what we're really having a battle with is that ideology, not with Bill Gates as an individual. He's only one person. Um, But what's interesting is if you look at your work over at the Corbett Report for the last few years, you have really dived into that syndicate and the history of that syndicate. So I wanted to mention a couple of your other series, one on the Rockefeller story and Rockefeller medicine. Maybe you could describe that briefly. Uh, well, that ties into the uh, the first, what I think of as the first round, the, the template or the model that the Gates Syndicate is using right now, which is the foundations uh, as, uh, as the base through which to propagate an agenda right. via philanthropy, or at least the cover of philanthropy, but specifically in the Rockefeller context, although that obviously goes into a lot of different fields. It did definitely go into medicine and through um, joint work between the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Flexner Report, which drastically altered the course of medical history in the United States and thereby around the world, right. basically monopolized the the health system uh, and, and took it over in a way that turned it into an allopathic system based on the prescription of medicines that themselves were often based on, or medicines and quotation marks, that were often based on uh, on uh, big oil products, essentially for uh, petro petrochemicals. Right, right. And then you had a series why big oil conquered the world, which tied into the the obviously the story and the and the medicine. That's right, exactly right. right. And so that basically just broadens that story out. It's not just about the the medical industry. It's also about pretty much everything imaginable, uh, including the Green Revolution, which took place in the, the 50s and 60s, spreading right. all of this wonderful technology for agriculture all around the world that were, of course, right. all based on petrochemicals, uh, petrochemical fertilizers right. and petrochemical-powered uh, farm implements and what have you, uh, that were all, always offered via USAID, of course, in debt to right. the, the recipients. And of course, that just trans- transformed naturally enough into the gene revolution that we've seen in the past couple of decades. And this the exact same model that's being applied to spread this wonderful genetic modification technology all around the world in the guise of right. saving 
poor, the poor African farmers or whatever the case, whatever they're trying to sell it as. But again, it's just part right. of the business model. Well, you know, it's funny. I grew up hearing about how wonderful the Green Revolution was. My grandfather had been Dean of Social Sciences at the Rockefeller Foundation. And to his credit, I can say he got pushed out by the Dulles because he was promoting decentralization. <laughs> and that was no, no. Um, then finally, I wanted to mention 9-11 trains because 9-11 was a false flag operation. And it's critical to understand how the money works. And um, that was one where you really went deeply and looked at the business model and how the false flag was connected to the business model. And I would encourage people because that was very much a, you know, the, the currency since the 70s has been on an oil standard. And so there's a deep connection between the currency and oil. And, and you really helped to sort of illuminate that in 9-11 train. So I would encourage you go to the Corbett Report. You can join as a member. Is that, or is there it a, is a membership? Donor? Yes, but the membership essentially gets you nothing. <laughs> you can get access to the subscriber right. newsletter, but the editorial's for free anyway. Uh, it allows you to comment on right. the website. Uh, it's essentially, if you like my work, support it, want to see more of it, please, uh, please sign up. Right. I would really encourage it because I think all of these series are very good. If you want to understand the news, you have to understand the deeper trends. And so the thing I love about the Corbett Report, of which I'm a member, is... You, you really dive into those deeper trends and you do a great job of showing them. Okay, so, so let's dive in now. I wanted to mention my view on COVID-19 is basically it's a currency war. So we're looking at um, an effort by the dollar syndicate to extend the dollar and to accelerate bringing in the new system. And the new system is not really a currency. The new system is a credit system that gives you complete control. And I think you did a very good job in the Gates series of showing how the goal was control. And I think it's important to understand this is an, from a financial perspective, this is unbelievably radical change. From a human's perspective, I would describe it as going from freedom to slavery. So we're looking at people who want total control. Absolutely right. No, this is a transformative event and obviously designed to be so. This is the complete and utter takeover of anything resembling the economy that existed, the complete destruction of uh, right. the economic models that existed up to this point, which of course brings with it the destruction of the monetary order as it has existed to this point, and what is going to replace that. Uh, there are so many different branches out of this that we could look at, whether right. it's geopolitical, the saving of the sort of American em empire from the threat that was growing from China and the uh, one belt, one road and all of that has pretty much been taken off the table in one fell swoop. But more, right. more to the point, I see the population control grid, as I called it in that third part of the documentary, which encompasses everything, including the digital payments structure, which will be tied into the biometric identification. This is a global system that they're implementing right now. So, so one of the hardest parts of communicating this for the last couple of years was most people could not fathom that the leadership would take it so far. I describe this as taking it so far back. So if you look at why we canceled the slave trade, two of the reasons we, couldn't, we canceled the slave trade was we couldn't put down the rebellion in Haiti and we couldn't perfect collateral. So the London banks kept losing money because there was no way to perfect collateral. Now you're talking, I mean, Gates is trying to implement a system, I call it creepy technology, that will perfect collateral. Is that not correct? Sure, but let's elaborate on that then. Okay, go. 
No, you, uh, you first. <laughs> I want to hear you. Well, voice. I would describe it this way because I, you know, we have we've literally created a database I call creepy technology, and there's what we know they can do now and where I think they're going. So I'm very clear that where I think they're going is trying to do a Microsoft Office system in your body. So Bill Gates. Bill Gates's business model was he throws a, a Microsoft operating system in your computer. It has a back door. His business model is giving people access to all your data and your privacy, and you inundate the world with viruses so you can regularly update that. Right. Yes, 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 right. yes, yes. And if you look at many of the things that have gone on to compromise the financial system and financial fraud, they couldn't have gone on with all those backdoors. Now, Microsoft was far from the only one. So I see Bill Gates and Microsoft as being a proprietary. Now, do you know what I mean when I say proprietary? Uh, no, okay. what specifically? Proprietary. In Washington, a proprietary was a business that looked like a private business, but was totally beholding to the intelligence agencies. And so... You know, you you would sit down and have a meeting with the CEO, would make a deal. You thought everything was fine, and then suddenly the deal would get unraveled, and it wasn't his board. It was, you know, Langley. In other words, his his entire financial model depended on government contracts, government subsidy, government this, government that, and literally the intelligence agencies, th they thought they owned and governed the company. So you get these weird situations where you have a board of directors that think they run the company, investors who think they run the company, intelligence agencies who think they run the company, and then a CEO who's just navigating between them. And it, it gets very bizarre because companies behave in what you and I would think of as highly non-economic ways. But that's because their business model is not the model in the annual report. Their business model is, you know, providing a backdoor to America for the NSA and the yeah. CIA. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, so you would tie that into the, uh, the antitrust uh, the case that was resolved in June 2001? Well, here's what's very interesting. I've never known the truth of that because they clearly had a hook on him before that. I, I always call it a leash. So Gates was on a leash from the beginning because what they like to do, if you're IBM and you're sensitive about what came out about the Holocaust, you want to be careful about being the front man on the back door. So you get a groovy young kid who's very naive about how the world works, but very ambitious and sort of ruthless, not a lot of empathy, and you get him to front for you. So you get a Zuckerberg, you get a Gates, and then it's, you know, you can tell immediately that this is going on because the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, oh, he's a genius. So whenever they're successful, you say, oh, well, he's a genius, you know, and that genius is the dead giveaway, okay, that there's something spooky going on here. You know, it's a fix. Anyway, so, so they had a leash on Gates, but clearly it wasn't strong enough. And once you came out of the antitrust settlement, immediately he starts the Gates Foundation. And it looks to me as though between Buffett and Gates, they basically had, you know, the software and the financial operation to do the next leg. And that leg was the leg at which, you know, they, they, they went after Gates the first year they started to pull the money out of the country. So when I'm watching your Gates series, one of the things I'm thinking about, because it had never occurred to me until recently that Gates was part of the laundry. You know, but if you look at how close he was to Epstein, Epstein and the Clinton Foundation were clearly part of the laundry. But if you look at how much money they pulled out and how much money Gates is throwing around the world, you know, to me, it's a very significant question. One of the things I'd love to take the time to do is dive in to look at the foundation and see 
if it was part of the laundry of that 21 trillion. And we're basically watching the world be bought with our own money. Yeah, well, you're you're exactly right to bring Buffett into the equation because he was, of course, the uh, real catalyst for the the Gates Foundation to become what it has become. Of course, not only donating tens of billions and being on the board, but also being part of the Foundation Trust, which, of course, is the financial side of that. And uh, once again, interestingly enough, that connection also comes through uh, Gates's mother, as people who watched my documentary know. It was Gates's mother sitting on the board of United Way with the IBM CEO that got him the ostensibly got him the IBM contract. Well, also it was Gates's mother who uh, introduced him to Buffett. And that was the, that was the pairing that essentially launched the Gates Foundation. Right. Well, G- Gates taught him two things. If you look at his O shucks act right now, you know, he's totally changed his act and it's very much Buffett trained O shucks. But the other thing is Buffett showed him how to you know, Buffett is, there's nobody better at sneaking around in terms of business model, but Buffett taught him how to use the foundation because, so let's, uh, let me, let me go through where I think he's going. I think where they're going and they're, they're prototyping tons of technology. So I don't think they have it yet, but where they want to go is they want to download a Microsoft office system into your body, into your brain and hook it up to the Jedi cloud contract and the the Amazon cloud contract at the CIA. And if they can get seven people, seven billion people hooked up directly to their cloud contracts and, and, you know, and use viruses, I mean, it's very clever, use viruses to keep those updates coming, you know, just keep those updates coming. So you saw my most recent article, the injection fraud. I think it's a fraud to call these vaccines. They're not vaccines. They're not medicine. Um, and, and, but I think it's the, the exact same model you used in the computers. And the idea is just like Bill Gates made it possible for the intelligence agencies to get a backdoor into our, our, you know, our data and our computers, they want a backdoor into, into our mind. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for, if you haven't, if you haven't looked into the creepy technology, the Charles Lieber kind of technology, it's hard to fathom, but um, we're beginning to fathom it. Exactly right. In fact, this is where I'm going with my research right now. Right now. I'm looking at not just um, the vaccines that we're being presented with, but where they are taking this technology. Right. And the scariest part about it is that, of, of course, they're now talking about the mRNA vaccines that will fundamentally change your DNA. Um, but right. they're also talking about being able to uh, electronically through signals uh, delivered to the body from a distance, basically remote control, update a vaccine. So essentially right. you get one vaccine and then it, they will be able to update it to change your genome at any time via remote. And this will be sold to the public gradually over this narrative of biosecurity that we've just been steeped through in the last couple of months. And that right. to me is the scariest part of this agenda because essentially that is complete control over humanity. Right. Well, I think part of it is if you look at what it takes to integrate robotics into the labor force, they can save many years and trillions of dollars if you take the existing labor laws and labor regulations and taxation and you integrate robots into the human system. And the beauty of doing that from their point of view is on one hand, you have a human, on one hand, you have a, a cyborg, but then legally, you're going to have all these things where things are integrated together. So for them, and I think this is one of the reasons they've been doing the transgender because you've got to take sex out of the system if you're going to put robots in. Robots don't really have a, have a sex. So I think a lot of the things that look completely Orwellian to you and me are part of this let's get 
let's get cyborgs and robotics integrated into the system. Right. Let and me, the more that me, that can be incorporated into the human system, the more there is a property claim in the things that they're putting in your body, because that's, absolutely. that's not you. That's our, that's our technology and we can patent it. We can uh, and then sue right. you for not complying with our property regulations or whatever. They're trying to put a property claim in human bodies themselves. And as you say, this is the collateralization of the, the system. Uh, the, the fiat system has always relied on the implied power of taxation to be able to control the populace towards uh, redeeming that debt. Right. Well, that's going to be a very literal stake in human bodies themselves at a certain point. So let me back up and look at the business model of the Gates Foundation. And, and you again, you went into this with the Rockefeller Foundation. The important thing to understand when the United States was created, the people creating it were competing with that model. The Vatican had, you know, no, didn't have to pay taxes and it had uh, immunity from, from local law. So you could operate outside the law, you didn't have to pay taxes, and then the magic of compound interest goes to work. So the question for this new country was how do we pool capital and create a lower cost of capital than the people we're competing with, the people we're breaking free from? So that was part of the issue of whether we're going to have a central bank because we've got to compete with the Bank of England and the European Central Bank. So a lot of this organized initially is how do we create pools of capital and credit that give us a lower cost of capital than the Vatican and the European central banks. And one of the things they did was create the university charters because the mother load, uh, in my opinion, of, of foundations in America is not the Rockefeller Foundation. It's Harvard Corporation and Yale Corporation. Now, the thing to understand about the business model is if I'm running an investment syndicate, aka the corporation, and I have to pay taxes, on my investment earnings, you know, that's one number. It's a much smaller number if I put it in a tax-exempt foundation. I don't have to pay taxes, and I can just keep rolling over my profits to invest in the companies that I want to build. So when people look at a Gates Foundation, they hear Gates gave a grant to this, Gates gave a grant to that. What they're not hearing is the grants he's giving is far less than the taxes he would be paying if he wasn't tax-exempt. And what he's doing is he's taking those profits and rolling them over into the companies that are preferred by the syndicate. So you're making the syndicate powerful through this sort of equity, equity generator. And I think you, you alluded to it. The LA Times a long time ago went in and, and did an, uh, sort of an analysis of where they were investing and discovered, oh, you know, over here they're giving a tiny grant, but over here they're financing Monsanto to make it much worse. And so there's a complete multiple personality disorder if you think the goal of the Gates Foundation is what they say. So, yeah. so you have to look at the business model. Now, if you look, at, um, if you look at, at how the Harvard Corporation, it's a great case study that I won't get into, but it's a case history that involves a lot of disaster capitalism and making money on disaster capitalism. That's where I first ran into Harvard. And two years ago, when the United, right before the United States took their books dark, Harvard announced that they were laying off most of the people who worked in the endowment, and they were outsourcing the endowment to different private firms. And that's what you do when you're going to take disaster capitalism to a whole new level, and you don't want your internal team to know 
what you're doing. You want to take it much smaller, much tighter. And then they announced they weren't, were going to stop disclosing a lot of information about the endowment. So Harvard Corporation went dark and then the U.S. government went dark, you know, and the next thing you know, we have Gates, Gates and the Gates Foundation trying to promote the creepy technology. No, exactly right. And uh, of right. course, that also ties into the Epstein uh, case as well. And Epstein's not only donations to Harvard, um, which they have slightly addressed, right. but they haven't really opened the books on that, but um, also to the MIT Media Lab. And that is the connection in, in through Gates. Gates was... I don't know if you knew this. Via Epstein? What? A, a very significant amount of the money laundered through the Madoff Ponzi scheme also went to MIT and Harvard for these kinds of research. So that was clearly, um, you know, that was clearly a target of the whole operation. And uh, it's interesting to see that specifically the technologies and the types of uh, uh, things that are being bankrolled. Um, a lot of bio bioscience, uh, specifically right. about the the uh, on the, exactly on that merger of uh, the transhuman technologies to do with nanotechnology, to do with microchipping, to do with um, other means of controlling human bodies, essentially. Right. Now, let me explain one of the things they're most afraid of. If you, if you, the productivity in the economy in many ways has been going down other than what they're getting from technology. So, so they've got a population of 7 billion people. And the question is, okay, how do we, how do we evolve our governance structures and how do we evolve our economy so that it stays productive? And one of the things they want to do out, do is they want to bring out very, uh, powerful new energy technology. And the problem is, how can you bring that out without having it weaponized, without it getting everywhere and everyone getting control? So it's one of the reasons they want to stay v- with very tight control, because they're, they're very concerned about what happens if we let this technology out, and then it moves to a decentralized basis. How do we control? So there are two control issues. How do you, how do you keep a lid on dangerous technology, number one, but then number two, how do we make sure we stay in control? Because if you go to a meritocracy, they're not going to have control. No, that's right. And also, um, it's not just the weaponization of energy. Uh, if there is radical new energy technologies that they're looking to bring out that can be decentralized in a way to harness that energy, uh, that right. energy has always been the, the key by which they've been able to suppress um, uh, the human population since the birth of the Industrial Revolution. That's why the monopolization of oil was so incredibly important in the, in the uh, foundation of uh, what became the Rockefeller Empire and the, the royals and others moved into that area so quickly because it was about controlling and monopolizing the energy source. The energy source of the 21st century will have to be monopolized in the same way if they want to um, retain that level of control. So I st- when I first saw GMOs, I said, oh my God, oil's not going to work as the currency standard. They're going to try and control food and replace oil with food. Now, it didn't work. If you look at the whole effort through Doha to take it to the next level, it kind of busted and failed. But one of the things you pointed out was Gates's effort to really uh, re-engineer the food supply and invest in big technology in the food supply. Maybe you could describe that a little bit. Well, as I say, this is part and parcel of what's been going on in just the foundation world generally for over half a century now. It's about monopolization of the food supply. We've had the, um, essentially, the food supply is narrowing down to a few companies that now control most of the seeds. Of course, we've known about the Terminator seed technology and things like that in Monsanto. 
uh, Monsanto's hands, formerly Monsanto anyway. And uh, the, the end goal of that, of course, is to have patent on life forms themselves, which was, of course, first ruled in Diamond v. Chakrabarty in 1981 that you could patent life forms. And of course, it's been uh, open season since then. So that I think that's an incredibly important part of um, this. And then, of course, you get the Gates Foundation Trust uh, investing heavily in Monsanto uh, right. to the point where uh, those those ties have been well documented by people like uh, Vandana Shiva and others uh, have exposed Gates' extremely important uh, uh, a contribution to that side of the, the, the equation. Right. I heard a great presentation by Shiva um, about a month ago, and I tried to get her new book, and I spent over an hour trying to find a place where I could buy her book and finally gave up. And then we have a very inventive producer who's on the, on the show right now, listening recording. And he went and finally found a website in Australia that would sell you a PDF, but it was a major hunt. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to get it is she says she totally outs the billionaires in the book. Well, apparently they think so, because this is the hardest book, you know, in the planet to get a hold of. It was quite amazing. So I the, haven't the read sense, it. Was it worth it? N- believe it or not, I haven't had time. I was watching the Gates series. <laughs> so I started with the Gates series, but I'm, that's, that, her books is the next. But there's no doubt that the censorship is on. So um, tell us a little bit about what the response you've gotten to the Gates series. Are people, you know, the, the challenge, if I'm a busy person, I've got a family, I've got kids, I've got a business, I'm busy. It's a lot of dots to connect to see, because we're talking about a system that is radically different from the system we're used to using. This is not a currency, not the traditional control systems. This is something unique and very much taking different parts of the world and integrating them with new technology. So you have to bring a lot of dots together. And my question is, is your audience coming back and saying, okay, you've connected the dots. I can see where they're going. Because if, if enough people, if 10% of the population can literally grok the creepiness of where they want to go and, you know, because I keep telling people death is not the worst thing that can happen. This is much worse than death. Don't be afraid of death. This is worse. Can, are, they, are they beginning to, to understand what these folks are up to? That's an excellent question. I wish I had a detailed answer for you, but unfortunately, I'm not getting that level of detail in the feedback that I've received. I've received a lot of uh-huh. feedback, very positive feedback from a lot of people, um, but it has not been at that level where I know that they're seeing the big picture per se it's just that i'm i'm oh that you know that was a good series you know thanks for doing that kind of thing so i don't know to what extent this has had the effect but i think it has at least opened the door on the conversation because this is as you say this touches on so many different fields and the areas right such a vast story that if i had told it all at once in one big two-hour documentary no one would sit down and watch it no one would get through to the end so i did try to break it up um but Right. Attention spans being what they are. I mean, it's still a question of whether you're going to reach people. I guess it's the quality of people you're reaching rather than the quantity. So have you looked at contract tracing yet? I am certainly familiar with this concept that they're trying to indoctrinate us with right now. Yeah. So, so what we have are people who have unimaginable liabilities for what they've done in the health area, what they've done in the financial area. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to do two things. One is to load an operating system into our bodies. I call it the injection fraud. 
because they're calling it a vaccine and under law vaccine is medicine. This is not medicine. So to me, what they're up to is a fraud. And then the second thing they're trying to do is implement contract tracing so they, they can have, com- uh, before they get the operating system and everybody, they can have complete control, you know, kidnap you, put you in prison with no warrants, break into your house, take your kids. And I keep saying to people, uh, uh, do you notice that it's the people who flew Epstein Air who all want contract tracing? Why is that? You know, why, why would you want the people who did Epstein Air to be able to come into your house and kidnap your kids. What's that about? Right. I mean, this is the part of the agenda that I think should be apparent to everyone, but I, perhaps it isn't yet, but uh, for people who are still confused about this, I would recommend a great essay by uh, Giorgio Agamben called Biosecurity and Politics. It is not a long essay, but it ties these threads together quite well because Uh what we are being what, what we're being steeped into is a new narrative. There was the war on terror narrative, but now that is being transformed into biosecurity. Biosecurity in politics is the new um, lens through which we're going to, to be able to see what's taking place around us. And uh, th- so everything about every, everything that we came to understand about terrorism, we are now going to be asked to believe in this realm of biosecurity, which of course, you know, they're going to frame it in this quasi-medical language about viruses and whatever, but essentially it is about control of people and ultimately human bodies themselves under this, this problem. Right. Now, what has finally been able to come out in the last month is that there was no reason to lock down for COVID-19 and all of the restrictions that were implemented were unnecessary and, and counterproductive. And so what we see, for example, I'll use New York. New York State uh, is estimated to have shut down 100,000 small businesses, essentially for no reason. Now, the question is, why? Why would the population go along with this? Now, one is, of course, the the virus is invisible, and so you can't prove that it doesn't exist, right? And they're, they're announcing, I mean, even it was... I don't. I wasn't. I never listened to the clip. But apparently, Trump said it was a hoax in the beginning. He knew. Well, at any rate, he quickly changed his story and started talking about the war with the invisible enemy. So I guess he got it right. So, so here's the question: We have we have governors and government officials all over the world who went along with destroying their own economy for no reason, and the question is why. Because what I've seen is this syndicate has that kind of control. They have uh, This the shouldn't ability. be puzzling, I think, though. But I, I, I don't understand why anyone would find that puzzling in any way, as if our economy, as if uh, the, the president or prime minister of any given geographical location cares about the mom-and-pop businesses per se. The only thing that they care about is their own keister and their own wealth and, and, and fortune. And that bread has always been buttered on the corporatocracy side of things rather than mom-and-pop businesses. The only thing that uh, that from a political leader's perspective they would care about with regards to that is that obviously political uprisings and revolution take place when uh, you know the mom and pop businesses go under and people can't support themselves and so I think that's right. The although the part of this although equation. the revolution we're seeing in the United States right now is very much financed and very professional. Oh, of course, yeah. Right. So there's no, there's no revolution there. There's no, just no, no, another no. no, but I, right. I think that from the political calculus, that would be the only thing that a politician would be thinking about. They don't think of the economy in terms of, you know, the average hairdresser or whatever running a right. little boutique. Well, so, so, so last year I did something called deep state tactics 101. 
And I did a whole series to go back and explain to my subscribers how things like control files work, how things like blackmail work, how things like covert operations, because what I was discovering is they couldn't fathom that every mayor and governor either has a control file or has a kickback package or has any of the things they use to manage the real system. So I went through and I explained it and I explained why, you know, Basically, an operation this big could happen, although I didn't expect it to happen until after the election. So, um, and what's interesting, we're doing the tabulation now, but if you look at the democratically controlled cities and states, there's a pattern in terms of the operation was much more successful in the democratic controlled states and cities than in the Republican. It's very interesting. Can I redirect the conversation slightly? Because um, Sure. Uh, the, to me, the the overriding, overarching question of this is what we know. This we now know what is happening to a large degree. Right. But what can be done about this, given the level of control and given that we're not dealing with one man who theoretically could be taken out one way or another? We're dealing with an ideology, with an economic model, with an entire system, right. with an entire infrastructure behind it, and we are at the bottom rung of the power pyramid without the resources to to play at that level of the game? So I don't believe we're at the bottom rung of the power. Um, you know, the, the poet said, ye are, ye, ye are many, they are few. So what I've found is that when, I, I don't know if the number is five, to, five or 10%, but when you get five or 10% of the population, particularly the population who are responsible for getting the trains out on time, who do the day-to-day -day work of the world and have a little bit of experience in how the legal and regulatory system works, when they get their back and back up and push back, you know, it falls apart. And one of the reasons it falls apart is at the top, there's enormous factionalism and competition. So for many years, I believed that the, that the leadership was going to kill each other. Um, but what we had to do was push back and say no. And I think for that 5 to 10% to push back and say no, and it's very granular how you do it. So how I would do it in Tennessee is totally different than how somebody would do it in Brooklyn is totally different. You know, so if you go through each person's unique situation of how they resist and say no, it gets very granular very fast as to what's effective. Um, but, but what I try and impress on people is you're going to have to say no, and you're going to have to decide which is more important to you, your life or freedom. Because uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Do you remember when the swine flu vaccine came out? Yes, I do. Okay. So they had mandated Massachusetts and they were starting to roll the mandates out through the governor associations and the, you know, in the state and local legislature associations. And, you know, they, they had a juggernaut. And I remember there were a group of us. I came out very early and, and wrote an essay saying, this is genocide and you got to stop it now. Anyway, so there are a whole bunch of people in the healthcare profession who worked, went into courts, litigated, really started to be very difficult. I picked up the phone and I called Franklin Sanders in Tennessee. He's a precious metals dealer in the middle estate. And I said, Franklin, if they mandate in Tennessee, can I bring my guns over to your place and we can have a gunfight there? Because there's going to be a gunfight and I would rather have a gunfight with you and your family. He said, oh yeah, there's going to be a gunfight. Come over here. You know, we'll have fun. So I think they were listening to thousands of those conversations because they were looking at real physical insurrection and resistance. And they said, okay, we don't, you know, we don't have this engineered. 
they step back. And if you look at what they've done since then to mandate vaccines, they've come at it at a much more bottom-up, very granular, going through industries, companies, working at networking, you know, much harder, much deeper. So, so that was an example where, you know, the NSA collected all the telephone conversations and said, boys, it's not going to work. Well, yes, which implies two things, one of which is, as always, information is power, but there is a vast asymmetry between the information that we have at our disposal and what the NSA has at its disposal. But secondarily, I think you're right. There is, still at this point, the the people who are actually literally running the day-to-day operations of the system are the the regular people, and the would-be masters at the top are um, just sitting there trying to direct it all. There's there's something else. Oh, go ahead. You well, go. But I, I want to bring in the point that I think there is an inflection point coming at which automation of the economy is going to be broadly possible. And at that point, right. the useless eaters will no longer be physically necessary. And at that, precisely at that point where they calculate right. they can flip that switch and start the, 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 the hard kill over the soft kill, they will do right. so. Right. Well, they have made that very clear. I've always tell the story. I was at the Aspen Institute with a, with a billionaire venture capitalist. He looked at me with these sort of dead eyes and he said, honey, you know, I buy these companies so I can figure out how to replace everybody with software and AI. And that's what we're going to do, you know, and, and we don't need people was sort of the message. Um, so that's the intention. But what I would say is that what they're doing is part of what I would call a machine model that's been you know, the machine model has been with us for 400 years, and yes, new technology changes it, but it's still a, a model that's very alien to life. So it's very unproductive, and the more you control it centrally, the more unproductive it gets. So to me, the model is going to fail, and we need to understand, you know, I've done enough analysis of the economy to know that if you if you could get to the other side where you have a free economy, the wealth on this planet could be significantly greater. There's no reason for environmental harm. There's no reason for poverty. You know, it really, what's on the other side of this could be quite wonderful and quite fantastic. There's no reason to have to go there unless you're the Rockefeller Gates syndicate and you want to maintain control. So I understand if you want to keep the machine model going and you want to maintain control, why they're doing what they're doing. I don't think it's going to work. Now, to me, what every person who's listening to this has to get very, very clear about, when I say that death is not the worst thing that could happen, if you look at contract tracing, one of the goals of contract tracing is to be able to come into a family and take the children out. And I started to make a list for my commentary, my weekly commentary, on what the things they would do with those children once they took them out. I got a list of 20 things, and I said, you know, this is too gruesome to discuss. So I'm not going to present this list. But I'm just going to tell everyone I'm not presenting the list because it's too gruesome. But what you need to understand is if you let them come into your house and take your children, that what's going to happen to those children is, you know, what happened on Epstein Air is nice compared to what could happen. So, so you need to understand that this is absolutely as satanic, you know, as, as it gets. And what you're talking about is will you allow them to do that to your children or your exactly grandchildren? Right. I mean, there are things worse right. than death and we will experience them if we keep acquiescing to this agenda. And I think right. you hit the nail on the head when you say that the machine model that's been in place for the last few hundred years of industrial uh, productivity is essentially anti-life 
And the only way to foist that on the world, which is abundant in and of itself, the only way to right. foist that model on the world is through control, through manipulation, through deception, and ultimately through death, um, destruction. And uh, that is the model that, that has been in place. So I litigated for 11 years up against the Department of Justice, and they repeatedly broke the law and were free to break the law. But ultimately, we were essentially able to win. And the reason we were able to win is if you got in and you worked the situation, whether it was in the courts or in the, in the legislature or the, all the different aspects of how our day-to-day -day system is governed, and you brought the facts forward, and you brought the law forward, and you exercised the attention you needed to fight on the basis of the law. They couldn't look you in the eye and say, no, we want to break the law. They couldn't say in a formal capacity, oh, we're going to break the law. And that's why it takes a significant effort of pushback, and that's what's got to happen. It's not enough to just shoot somebody if they come into your house and take your kids. You've got to go into court. You've got to go into the state house. There are all sorts of organizations who you can, you know, for example, in, in, um, in Tennessee, we have a very good sheriff association. We have a very good Tennessee firearms association. You have lots of civic organizations who are dedicated to maintaining human freedoms but you've got to you've got to get with them and you've got to make clear it's this bad right you've got to force their hand because obviously they are dealing with a, a rig deck and they the, their power comes in never openly stating their agenda and, and what's right. happening so our power is in revealing that agenda to the other people who are enforcing it unbeknownst to themselves for the time right. being that they are enforcing it because we are moving into turnkey totalitarianism where it literally takes a few people to be able to engineer systems of control that can control literally billions of people. And that right. once we reach that inflection point, that's truly what, what keeps me up at night because I know they will flip that switch when they can do it. And we how, do have a how lot long, of time. Here. How long do you think we have until they flip that switch? I cannot say because I truly do not know the, the level of technology that we're dealing with uh, at this point. Uh, obviously, there's the 18 layers of obfuscation over that. But uh, let's put it this way. I do not think, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ray Kurzweil. I don't think he is crazy. I think the idea of the singularity and reaching an inflection point with, by the end of this decade or, or the next is, is realistic. We are talking at most decades before this type of uh, technological right. tyranny is, is available. Right. So let me give you a piece of good news. If you look at what was happening at the, um, at the end of last year with the de-dollarization process, it looked to me like Gates and his syndicate were forced to move much faster. If you look at how COVID-19 happened as an operation, it went off fast and it went off sloppy. Now, I'm not sure why. It wouldn't surprise me if what happened in Wuhan was a prototype that went wrong or went bad something, there's still something about Wuhan that we don't yet understand. Um, and my question with Lieber in the mix and Lieber getting arrested was, did they do the brain machine interface prototype and something went wrong, it went bad. But, um, but they went fast and they went sort of making it up as we go, which meant the dollar syndicate was in trouble. And if you look at the financial patterns at the end of last year, every investment advisor I know, Asia, Europe, the United States was saying, okay, okay, S&P long in the tooth, it's time to move out. And that was going to give the Fed 
real problems because the Fed started the next round of QE in September and it just keeps getting bigger. They're putting a trillion dollars a day into the repo market. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, M- M2 is up, M1 and M2 are up 20 and 30% for the last year. So the the monetary stimulus is just... Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah, they are losing control monetarily. I think that that much is apparent. And and that started to be apparent to everyone, I think, last September. So I think you're right. There is a certain that they don't have all the time in the world to implement this. They have to get it done right. while they can. And if you look at, at if you look at the BRIC nations and where they want to go, they don't want to be part of of, you know, it, it's one thing to say you want to be part of central control. The question is, who's going to control it centrally? And that's, I call it the Midianite thing. There's a story of Gideon in the Bible where the Midianites jump up and kill each other and Gideon's army wins. I think there's, if you, if you look at how rushed this was, how it came off, all the different, uh, you know, there's tremendous pushback from inside the governments. I don't know if you saw the German study that just got leaked saying this is ridiculous. There was no reason to do any of this. I mean, that so, so if you look at the speed at which they're going, how sloppy it is, if you're looking at the pushback they're getting, one of the things we're seeing is there's enormous education in the body politic. Oh, it's really this bad. So when I published the injection fraud and said, you know, basically laid out what, they're, what I believe they're trying to do, you know, all the people who two years ago would have rejected and called me a conspiracy theorist, you know, they didn't do that. They're like, uh-oh. You know, this is so so that is an opportunity because they are not of one mind and the the real pushback is now just beginning. Yeah, you're exactly right. And let me highlight that because earlier when you talked about feedback for the gate series, I think uh, the specific specificity of the feedback was lacking. But the fact that this particular information is reaching further and and reaching more types of people than anything I've ever put out before should in and of itself be hopeful. There, there really is a widespread, uh, uh, I, I don't know, awakening sounds a bit grandiose, but at least a dawning realization amongst a large section of the population that something deeply, deeply transformative is happening here and they don't know what it is. And I think that right. is to our advantage because suddenly we might have that five or 10% or whatever the critical mass will be needed to truly say no to this agenda. Have you ever read political ponerology? I have, yeah. Okay. So, so remember when he describes what happens when the general population realizes, oh, we have 5% of the population who's incapable of empathy. They're really that stupid. They're really that different. They're really that separate. Suddenly, they go to work with intelligent, effective strategies. But the hard part is getting them to understand you have this collection of people who are incapable of empathy. And because of that, despite all their technology, they're deeply stupid. So one of the things that happens to me is every time I get into the room, um, you know, with anybody like my former associates when I was in Wall Street or Washington, what I discover is they're in a bell, they're talking to each other, and it is phenomenal how stupid they are. They're not stupid people, they have very high IQs, but they've been operating in a rig game and they've gotten totally and terribly stupid. They don't know it. They don't know it. And so what I'm hoping comes out of this is an educational process and maybe we can get to another side. Now, what I would just say is I'm extremely optimistic of what what is possible on the other side. And it really comes down to, is there 5 to 10% of the population 
who have who have the wherewithal to push back in a multiple different ways in their own place who can fathom it's this bad and they have nothing to lose by pushing because my entire you know I left Washington in 1998 saying this is an emergency you know totalitarianism is coming they're going to get this technology and do all this stuff I had no idea then how creepy it would be but but since that time what's that 20 years I keep running into people who think that the way I can take care of my family or I can take care of my child or I can take care of my business is to play ball. And so, you know, there's been this middle of the road and now it's separating and there's no yeah. middle of the road. Can we get five to 10% of the people soon enough, early enough yeah. to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with freedom. Yes, I think we can, but the uh, I think there are, the social engineers are already trying to head that off at the pass. You mentioned, of course, the revolution, quote unquote, that's taking place in the United States right now, which of course is a facsimile of revolution that is meant to uh, right. to, to to organize and to take that energy and direct it in non-productive ways, precisely because I think they understand this this movement is coming and. How do you get people to actually beg for the very things that we were just looking at with horror in the COVID situation, the contact tracing and everything else that comes with it? Well, let's put it in the framework of uh, the, the you know looting and riots and the, the city's going to burn. So now we need the military to come in and bring order. And that is how they, I think, clamp down on this, which is why we have to expose the sort of deeper agenda of this to get that 5 or 10% of the population that we're going to be directed in that direction of clamping down on this revolution that's taking place right now. We need, we need the military. We need to direct them back right. at the actual target. So, so for those 20 years, every year we have a presidential election, I end up having a fight with all my subscribers who are fascinated by the presidential election. And I keep saying, you care about the sheriff. You care about who's your sheriff. The whole federal credit is controlled bottom up through the mayors, the governors, the city councils, the state legislatures. You've got to go to work. Stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter. Wh whoever, you know, I always tell people the Secret Service guns point outward and they point inward. So whoever the president is, they can't help you and they're not going to help you. It doesn't work like that. So you've got to go into your local elections, but here we are again. And I'm again, having trouble getting people to focus on the local elections. Yeah. Well, uh, and what, what it was ever thus. And that's the entire point of the presidential circus, which even in my lifetime, I'm not that old yet, but even in my lifetime, I've witnessed the devolution of po political uh, charade in the United States towards the fact that it is now 100% focused on the question, will it be Mr. D or Mr. R who will be president of the right. United States for the next four years? And that is the only political issue that people are allowed to discuss or debate. And everything swirls around that, which of course is the exact opposite of the system that was at least theoretically put into place. Uh, a, a republic is not supposed to be about the president. The president presides over the government. He is not some sort of dictator or ruler, or at least that was the theory. At any rate, so they managed... They've managed You're to turn it into the, uh, the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy parody right. of that. It is now Zaphod Beeblebrox, who is, you know, who cares what color uh, tie he's wearing? It is, it is just another side of the oligarchy. So you're in Japan. Tell us what's happened during this period for the last two months in Japan. 
Japan was initially reticent to acknowledge that anything at all was happening because, of course, of the Tokyo 2020 Games, and they didn't want to cancel that. Uh, when it became uh, obvious that that wasn't going to happen and they postponed it, I did make the prediction, and uh, amazingly enough, it came true the exact, literally, the same day that they announced the postponement of the Games is the day they announced there's a break, an outbreak in Tokyo. Oh, there's a hot spot. And if you guys don't <laughs> behave, we're going to have to lock down. And so they started that narrative on the exact day that they announced the postponement of the games. It came to a head about a week or two later when this hotspot was growing. We're getting new infections every day because they're testing more people every day. So it's literally just a function of the testing. Um, but uh, it did come to the point where they ordered a state of emergency in Tokyo, Osaka, and five other prefectures uh, where there were viral outbreaks. That was extended to a national emergency in the middle of the last month in April. And uh, what does that actually mean? But my absolutely, impression is the day-to-day life is m- it, it, it much meant better absolutely there. Absolutely nothing whatsoever, because even the Japanese government itself admits they do right. not have legal authority to do anything at all to enforce any sort of lockdown or quarantine or to close businesses at all. All they can do is request that business owners. Uh, shut right. their doors or, or reduce hours or whatever it was. So literally, it meant truly legally nothing whatsoever. And uh, uh, other than the shutdown of public institutions like schools and libraries and what have you. Right. Okay, well, I would just summarize this section as saying there are many things people can do. You can go into the courts, you can go to the state house, you can city council. We've had uh, up on Solari a bunch of different subscribers writing letters and, and sharing templates, but basically pushing back and proving that all the restrictions that are being enforced are not in alignment with science or the facts. So, so whether it's educating, communicating, or getting in and lobbying, there are many different things you can do. And I think I also, think let's, not neglect, let's not neglect the monetary side of this. That is always the, the, the key to right. all of this. And this could be a, an excuse for people to realize the flowering that could happen in the agoristic black markets, gray markets, uh, side markets, in terms right. of alternative currencies, anything that you can do to get around the monetary system as it exists right now. And I think there is there is now people right. who understand the need for that as they start to implement more and more control. Right. My, my only objection, my objection though is to digital currencies because I think digital currencies help them, helps them go where they want to go. In other words, I, I agree uh, to a large extent. I think it, it uh, to me, it's about case use, but also, uh, yeah, well, I'm not necessarily talking about digital currencies. I'm talking about absolutely anything right. and everything that can get around this, including barter, including let systems, including absolutely uh, uh, physical um, precious metals. And well, the more resi- the more we can do for ourselves, and the more resilient we can be. But the other thing is, ultimately, since we're financing this, this is going to have to come down to. Are you putting money in their pockets? Are you buying their treasury securities? Are you, you know, if you go through every part of your balance sheet and statement, where are you financing them? And how can you shift that financing to something that makes you stronger and more resilient? So let me just finish by, uh, let's talk about the Corbett report. Go through your website, how they can find you, how they can support you, and what you're going to be doing over the next month. It's CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And that is the one-stop shop for everything I do, audio, visual, and, uh, and text. 
and it's all freely <laughs> available for the public. There's nothing behind a paywall um, uh, of any sort. As I say, there's a subscriber newsletter, but the editorial is for free anyway. So uh, it's it's meant as a resource. It was always under the principle of open source intelligence news, and what that means is that as intelligence agencies have been admitting for decades, their most valuable <laughs> intelligence doesn't come from James Bond on the ground. It comes from reading newspapers or listening to radio broadcasts right. or doing things that are completely right. 100% out in the open. And I think we can apply that in a decentralized way on our side of the equation to find out what is really happening in the world. That's the principle I've always right. relied on. I have no secrets, insider information whatsoever. Everything that I get, I get from public records. And I think that's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, having said that, uh, my research priorities for the next month uh, are up in the air at this precise moment that we're talking, because obviously the narrative is changing. Literally one week ago, if you stepped outside your door, you were a grandma killer. And now, uh, to, today, we have medical doctors right. signing statements saying that they are in support of the protests that are going on and people should be out protesting. Like, it's, it's, it's getting cartoonish. And so I'm not sure exactly what the best vector is, but I do want to remind people who sometimes forget that I am not American. I am a Canadian in Japan. I have set foot in America a grand total twice <laughs> in my life. So I'm not going to be some pontificator about American race relations or whatever people right. are expecting me to be right now. But I am going to be Where concentrating my firepower on this population control agenda and the ways that it is going to manifest from here. Right. Well, if you look at how the New World Order is being financed, it's being financed through the federal credit mechanism in the United States. So, and I don't even think of that as United States. I think that is the Anglo-American Alliance. So, if you take the Anglo-American Alliance, all the different parts of it, and, and the, you know, the hubs are the city of London and New York, it's the federal credit mechanism and the dollar syndicate that's making it go. So if you look at what happened with COVID-19, obviously I think it's an op, and I think that op came much higher than the U.S. government. I mean, it came, it came down for, I don't think they're in control, obviously, from watching them. So, you know, there is factionalism, yeah. but... I mean, exactly. Even the term the right. U.S. government is misleading because it, it implies a unitary power structure, which doesn't... Really well, I don't know if you know this. You know, I've always said the U.S. government doesn't have informa information sovereignty and it doesn't have financial sovereignty. But uh, the Pentagon announced that the UFO videos were correct the last month. And I said, oh, great. Now they've, now they've admitted they don't have... They don't control their airspace either. <laughs> so that's the question. What is the U.S. government other than to manipulate and control us? So I know you have to go, James. Thank you much, very much for joining me on the Solaria Report. Have a wonderful day and take care of you. Thank you.